Open your Bibles to Acts 25, Acts 25, and I'll, I'll read these two chapters before you before we dive in. Chapter 25, verse 1, Festus then, having arrived in the province after three days, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were pleading with him, requesting a favor against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem while they, while they set an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go down there with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let let them accuse him. And after he had spent no more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took his seat on the judgment seat and ordered Paul to be brought. And after Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no sin, neither against the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and be tried before me on these matters? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Now when several days had passed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and and greeted Festus. And while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, The chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that this is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the judgment seat and ordered the the man to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they were not bringing any charges against him for the evil deeds I was expecting, but they had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion, about a certain Jesus, a dead man, whom Paul asserted to be alive. As, and being perplexed about how to investigate such matters, I was asking whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there to be tried on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So on the next day when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the hall accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the order of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you, you see this man about whom all people of the Jews appeal to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. And see, since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him, yet I have nothing to, to, to definite, definite about him to write to my lord. Therefore I have brought him before you and all, before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investi- investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. Now Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul, stretched out, stretching out his hand, began to make his defense. Concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I regard myself blessed 
King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing here being tried for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to obtain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being, being accused by Jews. Why is it considered unbelievable among all of you if God does raise the dead? So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus, the Nazarene. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all of the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a servant and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing, from, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the authority of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the, the region of Judea and, and even the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, practicing deeds appropriate to repentance. For, for this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and were trying to put me to death. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand here bearing witness both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and, and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer and that as, that, that as first of the resurrection from the dead, he was going to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And, and now, while, now while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this, not, this has not been done in a, in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. But Agrippa replied to Paul, In such short time are you persuading me to become a Christian? And Paul said, I would pray to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also to, to, to all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And the king stood up, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him, and when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or, or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. <laughs> what makes somebody crazy? How do we define a, a, crazy, a crazy person or, or, or someone who is insane? 
Often it's the description of a person who cannot discern what is real or not. They don't have a grip on the hard facts of life and, and what's actually going on around them. They may hear voices that are not there. They, they may see things that, that don't exist. Sometimes they think people are, are following them when, when no one is. So when you're normal, you usually don't want to say or do anything that might make people think that you're off kilter. No one wants to be perceived as being weird or, or strange because that can affect a job promotion. That can, that can, get, away, that, that can get in the way of earthly success and, and social standing. And so for believers, we, 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 we try to thread the needle of appearing normal and sharing our faith at the same time by, by talking about spiritual matters that our unchurched friends can understand and, and accept. If we keep Christianity in the category of, of becoming a better person, then we can kill two birds with one stone. We, we, we can think we're being faithful and sharing our faith while, while still earning or at the very least not losing the respect of the world. But in, today, uh, in today's passage, we will be reminded that that, that approach is just not going to fly. Because the cornerstone of our faith is not moral reform. The cornerstone of our faith is not becoming a better person. It's not even forgiveness or, or going to heaven, even though these are all very important truths. No, there will never be a day when the world will accept us as normal and reasonable because the cornerstone of our faith is the contention that a dead man rose from the grave. And for most people, that, that simply defies reality. Once you mention the, the resurrection, they immediately think you, you believe in something that just can't happen. We've never seen anybody die and come back to life. And that reaction to the, to the resurrection, and that, re, that reaction to the very cornerstone of our faith puts us in the category of, of insane. In, in varying degrees, to be sure. If you say you're going to go to the Easter service, they will, your, your, your co-workers will, will give you a pass. Uh, one day of the year, they'll think, okay, well, uh, there's a mental relapse for, for one day of the year, that's okay. But if I talk about the resurrection more than that, if I, I put it in the form of a gospel presentation, uh, uh, then they'll, they'll think, well, you, you must have had trouble, uh, a troubled upbringing, and, and if you want to believe that as an emotional crutch, then fine. But we all know, we, everybody knows that, that, dead, that dead people can't come back to life. But if we live, if we suffer for the truth of the resurrection, if it's clear to others that, that we're, we're, we're willing to die for a resurrected Savior, if we put all our chips in the one basket of the resurrection, then the world will say, you're crazy. You're insane. Why would you die for something that's a, a figment of your imagination? Why would you suffer? Why would you lose it all for, for fiction, for a story? In today's text, Paul's trial will remind us that the insanity of giving up your life for the resurrection is really the only reasonable way to live. We're in the last third of the book of Acts where the focus is on the nobility of the church, where the emphasis is on the character of the church. Because our king, our, because, our, because our Lord Jesus is a king, because of our union with this king, that makes us by position and nature royalty. In today's passage, we're, we're going to consider how our, how our faith in the resurrection makes us the most reasonable people in the world. 
Because somebody with noble character can't be crazy. A, a king, a, a queen, a, a cannot be insane. Kings and queens must be mentally fit to lead. And that's what the church is. We're righteous, we're innocent, uh, we're, above, we're above reproach. We cover that in Acts. And today we'll think, we'll, we'll, we'll realize, we'll learn, we'll examine that we're also the sanest people in the world, not in spite of the resurrection, but because of the resurrection. So in chapter 25 and 26, after, you know, the, the background a little bit, after three missionary journeys, Paul returns to Jerusalem to bring an offering to the church, and the Jews see him there, the Jews from Asia Minor, they get upset, they, 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 they gather a crowd around him, they attempt to beat him to death, he's, he's put in prison for about two years, and for two years the Jews are trying to kill him. And, 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 and the Apostle Paul already went through one trial before a Felix, and today he, he's going to undergo two more trials. One before a, a, a Festus and the other before Agrippa and Bernice. And let's, let's dive in and find out, let's find out this morning just exactly who's the crazy one. Point number one, the insanity of going to Rome, verses 1 through 12. Verses 1 through 12 of chapter 25 are important because they explain how does Paul end up in Rome at the end of the book of Acts. Acts 28. And we know in verse 1 that Festus, it says, has, has arrived in the province of Judea. Um, he's the new governor, governor of, of Jerusalem. And he, he's, a, he's a new replacement for Felix. Look at chapter 24, 24 verse 27. It says that uh, Felix, after two years, was, was succeeded by Portius Festus. And Felix has been recalled by Rome for incompetence. And he is facing major censor in Rome. He is, uh, he is about to, to lose his career. He might even lose his life. And so, so when, um, when, when Festus arrives in Jerusalem, Festus is really feeling the pressure to make a good uh, first impression. And so in verse 2, he he meets, the, look at verse 2, the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews. That's what you're, you're supposed to do if you're going to be a, a competent leader, if you're going to keep the peace in, in Israel. And notice in verse 2, are, are, they, are, they, are, they looking for, are they looking for justice for Paul? Do, or do they want a, a fair verdict? No, look at verse 3. They're requesting a favor against Paul. They want a political favor, verse 3. And... If Festus complies, the plan is to kill him on the way to Jerusalem. They want Paul brought from Caesarea to Jerusalem where they plan to uh, kill him. And give Festus some credit. He holds his ground. He says, no, if, if you want to bring charges against Paul, you have to come to Caesarea. He says in verse 4, he answers them, listen, um, he's being kept at kept in custody at Caesarea. Therefore, verse 5, if you want to come down there with me, and if you want to accuse him of anything, come down. And verse 6, it says that Festus came down to Caesarea about 8 or 10 days. He took the judgment seat. He ordered Paul to be brought in. And Paul arrives, and the Jews come around him. And of course, the charges are spurious. They're false. They're not true. At the end of verse 7 says that. They were bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. They're all lies. And so Paul, of course, protests his innocence from every single angle in verse 8. He says, I've committed no sin either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. I am innocent in every angle conceivable. 
Now, in verse 9, Festus' response is anything but sane. It's anything but rational. More importantly, it's, it's, not, it's simply not justice. And Festus bends a little bit. Festus feels the pressure a little bit. And so he, look at verse 9, he, he motivated by this desire to do the Jews a favor, he asked Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and to be tried before me on these matters? Festus doesn't want justice for Paul. Festus wants political capital. Paul's not the crazy one here. The religious leaders of Israel, the ones who are supposed to uphold the law, they're crazy for trying to kill and murder an innocent man. Paul isn't the crazy one. Festus is the crazy one. He is compromising the ideals of Roman justice for political favor at the expense of somebody's life. Who's really crazy here? And so so Paul, in verses 10 through 12, makes the only sane choice available to him. He realizes that everybody is crazy except for me. He, He says in verse 10, I am standing before Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. The apostle is the only one who knows how Roman justice works. He knows even more than Festus, the Roman governor, that that if, if these are Roman violations, I should be tried in a Roman court. That Rome should not be a tool in the unrighteous pursuit of Paul by the hands of the Israelites. Paul's not afraid of dying. If he's done anything wrong, verse 11, I'll die. I don't refuse to die. And so he appeals to Caesar. At the end of verse 11, he says, I appeal to Caesar. And this, 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 this appeal, it, it, was, it involved using the highest official possible to make the legal decision. This appeal was called a pro, provocatio in Latin. It was one of the oldest Roman ancient rights a Roman citizen could have dating back to 509 B.C. Does Paul really think he will get justice in Rome with Nero as, the C- with Nero as Caesar? I don't think so. Paul's greatest concern here is taking the gospel to Rome, and this appeal was an easy way to do it. The Lord Jesus said to Paul in Acts 23.11, Take courage, for as you have solemnly borne witness to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must bear witness at Rome also. So Paul has probably been praying about how he's going to get to Rome to take the gospel, and an opportunity arises, and he takes the, the open door. And he says, and God says to him, okay, Paul, uh, here you go. Let's go meet Caesar. Paul isn't crazy. What he needs to do to get to Rome is kind of crazy. And we, we, we move to the second, the second point of our, of, our, of our message this morning, the insanity of Paul's situation from verses 13 through 27. But what's so crazy about Paul's situation in chapters 25 and 26? Well, let me introduce you to King Agrippa and, and Bernice in chapter 25, verse 13. Several days had passed, and King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. King Agrippa here is Herod Agrippa II. He's the, uh, the, the only surviving son of Herod Agrippa I. Remember Herod Agrippa I? He was the guy who died in Acts 12 when worms ate him. And King Agrippa's father, King Agrippa's, uh, uh, okay, so King Herod Agrippa II, who is called King Agrippa here, his grandfather is Herod the Great, 
who was the same Herod who tried to kill the baby boys during the birth of Jesus, or who annihilated the baby boys when he tried to kill baby Jesus. Bernice, in verse 13, she is Agrippa's sister, and she is rumored to be an incestuous lover of her brother. And it's kind of strange why a, a brother and sister of that age, why it would be that they were traveling together. So Bernice, she is, she's been married a couple of times, in addition to being the mistress of the emperors Vespasian and Titus. In other words, these, these two men are, aren't exactly paragons of morality, and yet this couple will sit in judgment on Paul, whom, as Luke makes really clear, is innocent. Who's really the crazy one here? Now, Festus has a problem because uh, he doesn't know uh, he, he doesn't know what to write about Paul. He's about to send Paul to Caesar, but he doesn't know what, what law that Paul broke to justify sending to Caesar. And so he, he asked King Agrippa and Bernice to, to help him. King Agrippa and Bernice are Idumeans, and that's Latin for Edomites. Back in 130 BC, the Jewish Hasmonean dynasty, they captured, they conquered Edom to the south. Edom, they were the, they were the, the, the descendants of Esau, and so the, 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 the Jewish Hasmonean dynasty, they conquer their older hairy brother to the south of Judea, they annex Edom, they, they, they force them to be a part of Israel along with mandatory circumcision and religious adherence. And so the Edomians, King Agrippa and Bernice, they're not technically, technically Jewish, but they're aware of Jewish custom and law because they're kind of forced to practice that. And so uh, Festus knows that. He needs help. He's, he, th he thinks, okay, King Agrippa and Bernice, they can help me. They're more familiar with this Judaism stuff. King Agrippa and Bernice have very powerful contacts in Rome, and they can, they can also help Festus send Paul to Rome in, in a more smoother way. And so in verses 14 through 22, Festus de de describes the craziness of Paul's circumstances and situation. Verse 14, he, he, he says that, that Felix just left Paul in jail. That's kind of, that kind of, that's kind of weird. Like you would leave your homework at, at home. Yeah, you're going to just leave an innocent man in jail. And then in verse 15 and 16, Felix tries to portray himself as this great upholder of Roman law. He says, when I was at Jerusalem, verse 15, the chief priests and the elders of Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accuser face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. I was being the, 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 the upholder of Roman law. Was he really? No, he asked. He wanted to send Paul to Jerusalem. Third, he he portrays himself as somebody who, who, who dispenses justice in good time and in order. Verse 17, he says, I did not delay, but on the next day, I, I ordered the man to be brought before me while Paul has been in this prison for two years. Then in verses 18 and 19, we, we see the charges are, are fake, they're false, they're bogus. Verse 18, when the, the accusers stood up, they were not bringing any charges against him for the evil deeds I was expecting, but they had some di disagreements about their own religion. And another, we see a further quality of this insanity of this trial. Verse 20, 
You see how Festus is, is, is incompetent. He's, he's a politically compromised judge. Verse 20, being perplexed about how to investigate such matters, I was asking whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and, there's, and there to be tried on these matters. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. Verse 19, about a, about a certain Jesus. Who is this Jesus? But Paul's situation is so out of the ordinary, it intrigues Agrippa. Verse 22, Agrippa says to Festus, I would also like to hear the man myself. And so he hears him. And so the day of Paul's trial before Agrippa and Bernice, the entire hall is filled, verse 23, it's filled with great pomp and, and accompanied by all the elite of the society, all the commanders, all the prominent men of the city, and they're all dressed in the, in their, in the, to the nines, they're all dressed with the, the, the nicest kind of, nicest kind of a, a, a clothing, and, and in walks humble Paul in a prison uniform. And then Festus he further summarizes the insanity of Paul's situation in verses 25 through 27. He says, but I found that he had committed, he introduces him in verse 24 and then 25, he says, but I found that he, com he had committed nothing worthy of death and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him, yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I might have something to write. Look what he says in verse 27. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. Even Festus knows this is absurd. This is pretty crazy. So we know the reason for Paul going to Rome is pretty crazy. We know the craziness of Paul's uh, legal situation. And now we find out just what power gives Paul's sanity in an obviously insane world, in an, in an obviously insane situation. Point number three, the sane and sober truth of the church's witness. The sane and sober truth of the church's witness. Chapter 26, 1 to, 1 to 32. The, this, the series of, of judicial hearings in Caesarea comes to a climax and conclusion in Acts 26. But Acts 26 is also the climax of all Paul's speeches in this book. It is the longest speech of Paul in all of the book of Acts. And in this speech, in chapter 26, Paul isn't really defending himself. He's defending the gospel, and because it's really the gospel that is on trial, not him. We know that he's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. It's the gospel that is on trial, and the church, represented by Paul, is the defense's number one witness to the innocence of the gospel. Paul is a witness to the gospel on trial, and Paul is defending the legitimacy of the gospel, the goodness of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and the glory of the gospel. And so Paul begins his his defense of the gospel that is on trial by starting with the kind of people that the gospel saves. The gospel isn't evil. The, the gospel isn't unrighteous. The gospel isn't compromised in any way. The gospel isn't immoral. No, the gospel saves evil people. The gospel saves unrighteous people and immoral people. And let me tell you, through my own story, Paul, in verses 1 through 11, begins by sharing just how unworthy he was 
of the grace of the gospel. You see, one of the reasons why our world is so crazy is because it doesn't know how guilty it is. The, the unbelieving world doesn't think it needs forgiveness. Our unbelieving friends, our loved ones, have the audacity to think that they are good people who will never have to answer for their pride or their selfishness or their anger or their sexual immorality. That's insane. On the other hand, to know that you need to be forgiven by a holy God, there, there is no more sane kind of self-knowledge. And so the church's star witness for the gospel begins his defense by sharing just how unworthy, how unworthy he was as a candidate for the grace of the gospel. In verses 1 through 11, Paul shares to the court how crazy he used to be. He used to think he was righteous. He, he used to think he was serving God. And in verses 1 through 3, he says, listen, King, Grandma, King Agrippa, I, I am really blessed before you because, because you, you know something about Jewish law. You know something about the word. And so this is going to make more sense to you. And so I beg you to listen to me patiently. And so Paul in verses 4 and 5, he talks about his life as an unbeliever. He says, so then all Jews, verse 4, they know my manner of life from my youth. Everybody knows this. This is, this is public knowledge. That from the beginning was spent among my own nation and, and at, at Jerusalem. I was, I, was the, I was the biggest patriot of Israel. I love my nation. I love my country. Verse 5. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify. Everybody knows that I lived as a Pharisee according to the, to the, to the strictest sect of our religion. I, I, I thought I was righteous. I thought I was sane. And it was because of this, this delusion of self-righteousness that I was intoxicated by, verse 9, verse 9, I, I, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus the Nazarene. I was so crazy that I thought by persecuting Jesus Christ and his church that that would somehow please God. That's how deluded I was. That's how insane I was. And Paul, he shares more details about his former life as a persecutor of the church never before shared in, in verses 10 through 11. He says, verse 10, and this is what I did in Jerusalem. This is how crazy I was. This is how insane I was. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, we heard that before, but I also, what? I received, receiving, after receiving authority from the chief priests, but also, this is what I did. When they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. I was, I was part of the murder of God's people. And I thought that was righteous. I thought that was pleasing God. I was killing God's very own people. Verse 11. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to, to blaspheme Jesus for the in the name of God. Being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to, for to, foreign, to foreign cities. I, I thought I was serving God by making his children blaspheme his son's name. I was truly the craziest of all people. You see... 
the most healthy kind of sobriety, the most healthy kind of sanity is to know just how sinful you are. You see, sane people know they're sinners. Sane people, they're able to see their faults clearly. Sane people accept correction. And that's what Paul is saying. I'm sane now. I'm sane now. I have, I'm in my right mind now. I can see how sinful I was, how sinful I used to be. I can see how sinful I am now. I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. I'm sane. I can see my sin. You see, see, sane people, rational people, truly normal people, we invite rebuke and we we invite correction. It's the ones who refuse to examine themselves. It's the ones who refuse to take stock of themselves, who are afraid of a a thorough self-evaluation by the light of Scripture. That's crazy. Because you can't get better unless you know you're sick. You can't grow unless you know the areas where you need to grow in. Brothers and sisters, do do you know your sin? Do you you hate your sin? Do Do you know where you fall short? Do you care about how much your sin offends the Lord Jesus Christ? So in this this testimony of Paul's former life as a crazy man, as a Pharisee, in verses 6 through 8, he he interjects the story of his past to, to comment on the insanity of the trial that he's in. He's like, I'm not crazy, you're crazy. Look at verse 6. And now I am standing here being tried for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Paul is the only one who knows why he's on trial. Everybody else is like, why is he on trial? Why why is he here? Why is he in prison? And Paul says, let me tell you why I'm on trial. I'm on trial for hope. Chapter 23, verse 6, Paul says, when he's standing before the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. He's the only sane person in the room. What kind of justice system charges people with the crime of hope? Paul is being persecuted for hope. Verse 7. I'm being persecuted for the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by Jews. See, the Old Testament promised a kingdom for the 12 tribes of Israel. It promised that the kingdom would come when death was defeated per the promise of Genesis 3.15. But that victory can only come on the shoulders of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the only power that can conquer sin and death. So the hope of the Old Testament, the hope of the, the, hope of the tribes of Israel, was the hope that Paul had in Jesus' resurrection. And he's on trial for this. And then Paul asked the question in verse 8. Why is it considered unbelievable among all of you if God does the raise the dead? Why is this so crazy to you? I mean, think about it. If sin brings death, and God promised to overcome sin and death back in Genesis, wouldn't the resurrection of his son be the perfect way to do it? If there is a God... Wouldn't he know that humanity's greatest problem is death? 
Isn't that what we're all afraid of? Isn't that why we go to doctors and take medicine and exercise and eat like green stuff called salad? Why do we do all of that? Because we don't want to die. We don't want, we don't want to die. So if there was a God, he would know that death is our biggest problem. And if he knew that, wouldn't resurrection be the most perfect solution? I mean, resurrection seems like not just the only possible solution to what plagues humanity in the greatest way. Resurrection, resurrection is the absolutely perfect solution. The gospel isn't crazy. The gospel is the most normal, most sane, most rational, obvious answer to sin and death, right? How would God do it another way? So Paul moves from talking about just how unworthy of the grace, the gospel he used to, of the grace he, he was, unworthy of the grace that he, he used to be, to, to now just how powerful the light of the gospel of grace is in verses 12 through 23. How did Paul go from, from a Pharisee to being persecuted by the Pharisees? How did Paul go from being the primary persecutor of the church to the primary primary target in the persecuted church. What explains Paul imprisoning Christians to Paul being imprisoned for Christ's sake? Well, Paul says in verses 12 through 23 that he was overwhelmed, he was overpowered by the glory of Christ. And the, and the apostle now shares his conversion testimony again with even more details than previously revealed in Acts. He says in verse 12, when he was journeying to Damascus. It was at midday, verse 13, O king, when the sun was at its brightest. And, O king, that's when I, I saw a light from heaven, verse 13, and, 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 it, and it was even brighter than the sun. The light of the manifestation of Christ's glory to Paul, that glory was even brighter than the sun, and Paul says, that, that glory was shining all around me, verse 13, and, and all those who were with me, and that, and the glory of Christ, it was so powerful, verse 14, we had all fallen to the ground. And the Lord speaks to Paul in verse 14. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Uh, th this is a new t detail of what Jesus said. We haven't Saw, seen this before, that Jesus says to Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. The go a goad was a long stick with a little pointy, uh, pointy nail to it. And so if you were a farmer and you wanted to get oxen to move forward, you would take that stick and you would, you would, you would kind of poke their legs. And the, and, the, and the ox would either kind of go forward or they would get mad and they would kick against the goads. Stop poking me. And Jesus said, Paul, you're like a stubborn ox. A stubborn ox. I keep poking you to go forward, and you're kicking back against me. You're kicking back against me. You keep rebelling against me. Paul, you know the Old Testament very well. You know that the gospel that the church proclaims is true, and you keep kicking the goads. Your conscience tells you it's true. But you're... You're going against the wind. You're going against God. And what he's implying is, he's implying to the Jewish leaders around him, you're in the same boat. Jewish leaders, 
I've told the gospel to you. I've shared the gospel to you. You know it's true, but you're, you're like stubborn oxen. You're kicking against the goads, and it's hard, isn't it? A couple of Sundays ago, we looked at 2 Corinthians 4, where, where Paul described his Damascus road experience internally. And there he said that as great as the external light of Christ's glory that knocked Paul to the ground, as great and bright as that, 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 that glory of Christ that blinded him for three days on the road to Damascus, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, greater was the, the internal light of Christ's glory that gave him salvation. And he described this, this internal light of salvation in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 as the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul thought he knew God as he was traveling to Damascus to persecute Christians. But the truth was that God was a stranger to him. The God he thought he knew was a God who, who owed Paul salvation as a wage that could be earned by keeping the law. But he says in verse 15, when the light of the gospel flooded his heart, he met the true God for the first time in his life. And verse 15, he says, this is how I was introduced to the God for the first time in my life. I said to verse 15, who are you, Lord? Imagine that question. You're a Pharisee of Pharisees. You know the law. And, he, and, and the first question you, you ask God is, who are you? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. The first time you realized that Jesus was God himself. And, and Jesus says to him, hey, listen, Paul, I don't owe you salvation. No, I owe you judgment for your persecution of me. The only thing that Paul deserved was eternal death, but the Lord instead gave him the grace of gospel, verses 16 and 17. He says, Paul, stand up, rise on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a servant and a witness, not only to do the things which you've seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles in whom I am sending to you. Back in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul said that God gave him both salvation and his ministry of reconciliation at once on the road to Damascus. And we see that here in verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, I'm going to appoint you as a servant and a witness. And that was, that was, that was, that's what Paul's doing in chapter 26. He's, he's serving God by being a witness of the gospel, the gospel that is on trial. And then Jesus says at the end of verse 16, and to the things in which I will appear to you. So, so what things is he talking about? Paul's theology. Paul will, will receive all of his gospel theology, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, directly from the Lord. And that's what Paul said in, in Galatians 1, 11, and 12. Uh, For I make known to you, brothers, that the gospel which I am proclaiming you as good news is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was it I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's what, he, that's what Jesus says to him at the end of verse 16. I will appear to you. I will give you the New Testament. I will give you this theology. I will give you the gospel that you will proclaim. But what will, the, what will this gospel do? What will this gospel do? It does three things according to verse 18. 
The gospel opens, it turns, and it gives. It opens, it turns, and it gives. What does the gospel open? Verse 18, it opens your eyes. It opens your eyes. It gives you spiritual understanding. The, the gospel allows you to understand yourself, that you're a sinner. The gospel allows you to, uh, to, to understand the, the true nature of God, that he is holy. The gospel gives you spiritual understanding of the word. The gospel allows you to understand how life works and what the world is really like. The gospel opens and the gospel turns. Verse 18, it turns us from the darkness to the light and it turns us from the authority of Satan to God. The gospel, in other words, it changes the direction of your life. You turn from running toward the darkness to running toward the light. Before you trusted in the gospel, you were on a highway to hell. But when the gospel changed the direction of your life, God puts you on a path to heaven. You turn from the authority of Satan to the authority of God. When you were living in your sin, you were pleasing your sinful flesh, but you were also pleasing the ultimate authority of Satan. And so the gospel gives us the freedom to change owners to serve the God of perfect love and abounding grace. What does the gospel give? Thirdly, verse 18, the gospel gives forgiveness of sin and an inheritance, and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. We receive forgiveness of sin, and we receive an, an inheritance, a relationship with God with all the blessings that come with it. The gospel opens, the gospel turns, and next, the, the gospel sanctifies. We've been given an inheritance, for verse 18, among those who have been sanctified. That means the, the, the gospel gives you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit changes you, and the Holy Spirit makes you holy. He changes and conforms you into Christ's image over in a lifetime. And all of this comes... Look at verse 18, by faith in me. It all comes by faith. And then Paul continues in verse 9 and he says, and I did not prove, verse 19, I did not prove disobedience to the heavenly vision. It was a heavenly vision of the glory of gospel. And that gospel came with orders. The, the gospel of vision comes with New Testament commands. And, and the greatest command that comes with the gospel is the command to make disciples of all the nations. And that was, that's what Paul is doing now. Verse 20, I did not prove disobedient, but I kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the regions of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, practicing the de deeds appropriate to, to repentance. This is where the gospel gets us in so much trouble. It's not our theology by itself that provoke, provokes so much opposition to the church. It's when we tell others about our doctrine. It's when we tell the world about what Christ has done in what God has done in Christ that, 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 that brings the suffering it does. But it's this injustice, it's this suffering that God uses to spread the gospel even further than it would have gone without that suffering. At the beginning of Acts, Jewish believers leave Jerusalem, they go into Gentile territory, they take the gospel with them. Why? Because of persecution. It's because of persecution that Paul is standing right here. He says something really interesting in verse 22. He says, Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand bearing witness. That's so strange. Paul says, It's not the Jews who, who put me here on trial this day. It was God. God is the one who helped me. God is the reason why I'm here right now. 
God was behind it all. And so the gospel, the light of the gospel reveals the knowledge of glory of God in the face of Christ. The light of the gospel gives us salvation, spiritual understanding, a change of direction, forgiveness of sin, inheritance, sanctification, all by faith. It brings suffering and persecution as a means to spread the gospel even further into the world, to both small and great. And finally, this gospel doesn't come from us. Verse 22. I stated nothing but what the prophets and the Moses said was going to take place, that Christ was to suffer. That as first, that as at the first of the resurrection from the dead, he was going to proclaim light both to the, to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. We just, we didn't create the light. We just tell people about the light. God is the one who says, let there be light. So we're unworthy of God's grace. We've been transformed by the light of the gospel of grace. And now we finally see the scandal of the gospel. You see, the world, the world they've, heard, they've heard our message before in some way. You know, knowing God's spiritual understanding, uh, forgiveness, or relationship with him, these, these things aren't so shocking to the world. They've heard this sort of religion before. Yes, there are profound differences, but these differences are easy to miss and skipped over, especially to those who are indifferent, especially to those disinterested. The scandal of the gospel are not those things. What grabs the world's attention, what shocks the world, what scares the world, what threatens the world is a resurrected Lord. A Lord who's going to come back and judge the living and the dead. You, you, you take that part out of our message, and Paul is not on trial in, verse 20, in chapter 26. You, you take out the part of the resurrection of the king and the new creation it brings and, and, and the kingdom that it, it inaugurates, and there's no more persecution. You see, everything is, everything is fine with what Paul says until he gets to the resurrection of the dead. Look at verse 23. As soon as he gets to, as soon as he starts saying that, that Christ was to suffer, that he was the first of the resurrection from the dead, this is what prompts Festus in a loud voice to say in verse 24, Paul, you are out of your mind. Great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're crazy, Paul. You see, the scandal of the gospel is the resurrection. Because the resurrection is the beginning of a new creation. The resurrection is more than just a, about a dead guy coming back to life. That's what, that's what, that's what Festus thinks it is. He, he says, uh, verse 19, 20, chapter 25, they were talking about a, a certain Jesus, a dead man whom Paul asserted to be alive. It, it's more than that. No, the resurrection is, the, is God's siren call to the world that the end is near, that judgment is coming, and the Lord is going to sit down and judge the living and the dead. Verse 23, look at verse 23, chapter 26. He says that, that Jesus was the first of the resurrection. The first of the resurrection from the dead. What does that imply? That more of that is coming imminently. You see, to the world, the overthrow of death through the resurrection of Christ is insanity. And it's crazy to them because it's, it's just so threatening. 
No God could have the kind of power and authority that ends all death where there is no more sin and no more evil and no more dying, no more, no more, no more tears. Other religious messages, they teach moral values, but the gospel proclaims victory over death. And the world knows that whatever God or whatever religion can beat death, that God wins. They know that that God wins. They know that deep inside that the God who can overcome death and sin and evil is the only God worthy of, worthy of fear and worship and praise. We're not crazy. We're not crazy. You're not crazy. We need to be confident. That the, the, the resurrection of the gospel, or look at, look at verse 25, look at Paul's response. I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. That word sober, sophrosunes, the Greek word means total control of the senses. Total control of the senses. We're not crazy, the world is crazy. The only sane person in these last two chapters have been Paul. I'm not crazy. No, the, the resurrection is the foundation of my sanity. It's because he lives, I can face tomorrow. It's because he rose that I can face any trial, any trouble with a clear mind and a resolute will just because he lives. No, the resurrection is not doesn't make me crazy. The resurrection gives me sanity. The resurrection gives me the most, the most clarity in my life. You see, when you try to put the gospel on trial, the, the gospel takes over and puts you on trial. Look at verse 26. The gospel turns it around. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence. Verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe the gospel that is on the dock being accused of, of, of the highest crime now, the gospel becomes the judge, the jury, the prosecutor. And Agrippa knows just what happened. Agrippa, Agrippa knows now he's the defendant. Verse 28, in, short, in, in such short time, are you persuading me to become a Christian? How, how is this about me now? In 5, 10, 15 minutes, now, now I'm the one on trial? And Paul says, I pray to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but all those who hear me this day might become such as I, except for these chains. You can't stop the power of the gospel. At the end of chapter 26, the king and the governor and Bernice, they, they still don't know why Paul is is on trial and in prison. Verse 30. The king stood up and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him, and when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. They don't know why. What, what is he doing here? And then, unwittingly, Agrippa tells us the reason why in verse 32. This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. That's right. He could have been set free. And he's here because he needs to go to Rome with the gospel. Hey, freedom is nice. I love my freedom. I vote for freedom. But that's not what, that's not what the church lives for. 
You see, if, if we can somehow advance the gospel through the loss of our freedom, then, then put on the chains. Because that's the church's mission. What did Paul call himself? A prisoner of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we're not the blind ones. We're not the blind ones living in a world where everybody can see. You need to be convicted of that truth. No, we're the only ones who can see, and it's the world that's blind. And it's only when we've truly grasped that reality will we live according to that reality. Paul's life of sacrifice, his service of the gospel, it is the most logical, insane response to the resurrection. So you think, we think that Paul here and in chapter 25 and 26 is living some kind of radical life, some type, some type of extreme life. No, Paul is just logically living according to the truth of the resurrection. Because if death has been conquered, if death has been defeated, this is just normal behavior. And it's our problem. Our problem is, if we're honest, we, we simply don't live that way. For us, there's the, there's the, the glory of the resurrection, and, and then there's our lies, and they don't correspond with each other. Most of us here, we do not live like death has really been defeated. So, my prayer and hope from this message is that the Lord may help us live the most reasonable lives possible by being, by being willing to die for the gospel because death, death has been defeated by the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not crazy. We're not crazy. The world is.